It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It is a difficult thing to say that this is episode 42. That's not the hard part. It's that this is the final episode in the series on World War I, which has been a very, very uh, special process for me personally. Uh, it is, uh, it's a profound uh, period of history, and I think many of us that have sort of brushed up against it in this have recognized the significance of this. So much of our world today is defined by what took place in those four years, and uh, everything as we've discovered from uh, modern warfare uh, and uh, to communism, uh, that grew out of uh, this soil of World War I. And uh, the Middle East crisis, even though we didn't go into it, all grew out of World War I. So much of our world is defined by this period of time. And it's interesting because not only are the beginnings of World War I a bit sketchy, where you could look at it and say, uh, people, if we had approached this better, if we had had actually mature men in the positions of leadership around the world, then there's no way this would have ever happened. If we hadn't had so much revenge in France, if we hadn't had so much greed for power and desire for esteem in Germany, then world history is different. However, that could be the statement all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In other words, when men get in the way of God's purposes and when men shine forth their <clears throat> abilities as opposed to God being able to show forth what he desires to do, we end up with things like World War I. And yet those become great lessons for us to recognize our need of God. Now what's interesting is as I put sort of the finishing touches to this particular series today, I'm dealing with the end of World War I or what we would consider typically the end of World War I which is the beginning of World War II. And that's sort of what is interesting. When I finished up the World War II series that I did a couple of years ago, the very end of the World War II series was showing the very beginning of the next war, which was called the Cold War. And it's very fascinating about how you finish a war <laughs> is very, very important. You can't finish the way you started. And yet what we're gonna see is the way World War I started is the way World War I ends. And the way World War I ends is the way World War II starts. And the way World War II starts is the way World War II ends. And the way the Cold War starts. Uh, so it's just sort of an interesting thing. Is there something that can break up this pattern? In our life, we oftentimes have a similar pattern of defeat uh, where we keep repeating the same idiotic maneuver. And I call it the cyclical pattern of defeat where you know it's like a, a wheel, and when you're on the bottom of the wheel, it makes sort of a squishy sound like okay? And so, but and as you're going around the wheel, you can actually start to feel like you're whipping this thing. It's like, you know what? I think I've figured out how to not do that anymore. You know what? And you're feeling really good when you're at the top side of the wheel, right? And you're even thinking of writing a book on it, maybe going on a speaking tour to talk about how you whipped it, and then you go back down under again. And many of us know that cycle of defeat, and it's very, very frustrating. And what's interesting is when you stare at the, the story of nations, you see the same thing. 
you see the same cyclical pattern of defeat in this European landscape. And so that's what we're going to go into today, and hopefully it has a positive conclusion as opposed to a negative one like right now, because it is sort of hard to give a positive spin on something that leads to World War II, right? At the same time, we have a hope as believers to not continue in the same pattern. So this is part 42. It's called the Hall of Mirrors. So this is called the Palace of Versailles, and it is actually a lot bigger than what's in this picture. I, I looked at a lot of pictures. I was just trying to get sort of a beautiful one. This is one of the most visited places on earth. So as far as a tourist attraction, I've never been there, but I, after studying it and studying World War I, I'm extremely intrigued uh, to actually go to uh, the Palace of Versailles, Versailles and actually visit the Hall of Mirrors, uh, which is in uh, the Palace of Versailles. And uh, it's a massive location. I'll give you just a, a little uh, history. This is called a brief history of the Royal Palace. So uh, I forgot to change it in my notes. I changed in my notes, not in my keynote, but this is not Louis VIII, it's Louis XIII. Sorry, it's supposed to be an X, not a, not a V in, the, in his name. But Louis XIII builds a modest hunting lodge in 1623. I know this is very fascinating information, isn't it? And this is in this location that we're going to have the Palace of Versailles. And Louis XIII is also going to then replace it with a small chateau in 1631. All right, we just grew a little. Now, Louis XIV, who's a very significant character in uh, French history, is going to expand that lodge or that chateau that his father built into a palace in 1661. And uh, then Louis XIV is also going to move the seat of his court to the palace in 1682, which is basically going to make this the center of French government. And so this one palace is going to be very, very significant all the way back to 1682. During the French Revolution in 1789, see, kings ruled in this palace all the way from 1682 to 1789. And then due to the French Revolution, you're going to see an evacuation of it, and there's a hostile takeover of the government, if you don't know about the French Revolution, and it's going to fall into disrepair. And then Napoleon, because of the French Revolution, is going to claim power, and he is going to use uh, this uh, palace as his personal residence in the years 1810 through 1814. So not only was it the palace of kings, but it is now going to be the residence of kings. So this has a lot of history uh, and its rich history in uh, the French landscape. And then it's going to be repaired and brought back to its glory in the 1830s. So uh, that is going to set the pace for uh, where we're headed into. But this is called the Hall of Mirrors. It's uh, at the time when Louis XIV is developing this. Louis XIV is accused oftentimes of not caring at all about politics, but only caring about arts and culture. And, and as a result, some of the most beautiful things in all of uh, France are going to be built by Louis XIV. He is going to boast of his, his wealth and his luxuries, and he is going to show them off to all the nations. And this is, of course, this is where his throne was, is in the Hall of Mirrors. And so the, all the ceilings are sort of like the Sistine Chapel. If you've ever seen Michelangelo's work in the Sistine Chapel, the entire ceilings of the Hall of Mirrors are paintings and quite extraordinary ones. So these are just some clips from it so you can just sort of see uh, the, the sort of style it was, the Baroque style. 
and just some of the pictures. If you're getting this via podcast, this is just a lesson to you that you need to come for a visit to see things live. Or you could go online and see the video of this. And so these are some interesting paintings. It's fascinating to be able to study this because they have, French art was a huge deal throughout all of this time. So everything has a painting of it. And so all of these different uh, moments in the Hall of Mirrors are painted. So we have Louis XIV receiving the Doge of Genoa at Versailles, Versailles uh, sorry guys if I pronounced that incorrectly, on the 15th of May, 1685. So uh, that's just interesting. And here's another one in 1686, the Siamese Embassy uh, comes in. And so this is that same room that we're going to see over and over again. Here's the Embassy of Mehmet Raza Bey uh, in 1715. And you see the King of France up there as the embassies from foreign countries come in. And then here's another one, the Turkish Embassy in 1742 is coming into the Hall of Mirrors. That's a really cool picture. Uh, and yet again, I don't know what this mean, means, but the ball of the yew trees given in February of 1745. I, I, if you asked me the story behind that, I don't know. I thought the picture was really cool because it was of the Hall of Mirrors. In other words, there's a lot of stuff that has happened here. So as a result, that is going to lead to something that's going to happen in 1871, which if you follow this series, you know about. And that is... When you have the Franco-Prussian War, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us that speak English, but that's the France and German War in 1870. And the, you see, Prussia was a territory, it was made up of a, a lot of smaller countries that are going to rally together to try and take on the great power of Europe at the time, which was France. And so when you hear Franco, that's French, and uh, Prussian, that's Germany, and this is going to be the establishment of the German Empire, right here. So the Germany that we know in World War I and World War II is gonna start right here, and Germany, to spit in the eye of the French, is going to declare their empire in the Hall of Mirrors. And so this is the first Treaty of Versailles, right here. And the first Treaty of Versailles is going to be signed right here, the Declaration of, the of Wilhelm uh, Wilhelm II, you know, William, uh, that we've been talking about in this series, his dad is basically going to be crowned Kaiser of Germany or Caesar of Germany in the Hall of Mirrors. So this is the ultimate slap in the face to the French. Now, the reason I'm saying all of that is because the end of World War I is going to tie into this. If you don't know this, you don't understand how significant this was to the French nor how significant the end of World War I is going to be to the French, and how that's going to then lead to World War II. So Louis XIV uh, has a nickname, and it is the Sun King. And that might not mean a lot to you until you know what that means. That means that everything revolves around him. The entire nation of France revolves around him, and all the nations of Europe orbit around him. This is his philosophy. He believes he is the center. And this is something that he is going to begin to define as a key ruling mentality that he has. No, so for those of you that sort of ponder that a little, you're going to recognize that there's probably something unhealthy uh, in that. Uh, yeah, a little ego uh, woven into that, right? But whenever you put man at the center, it throws off the universe. Let's just put it that way. That was not the way God intended it. So there's our guy, uh, Louis XIV. Uh, 
He uh, loved to surround himself with artists. Many uh, people felt like the reason he surrounded himself with artists is so that they would paint him. And so he really liked to be painted. So there's a lot of uh, opportunities you can see Louis XIV, maybe more than most kings. So this is the term that's going to come out in that time, and it's called absolutism. And this is a form of leadership that Louis XIV is going to sponsor for himself. But it's not the end of absolutism. Uh, And so it basically means all things revolve around him, total control, total sway. So this is, it's not that you wouldn't see this in the past or that this hasn't existed in history, but this is going to emerge in the European landscape in and through Louis XIV. And though he is going to be able to accomplish a lot because of that, like what is going to be built in his name, the, the incredible architecture uh, advancements that are going to take place, scientific advancements that are going to take place. I mean, it's truly remarkable. It really is. And yet the misery that is going to take place under the thumb of this man is also quite amazing. So now I just sort of planted a seed there with this whole Louis XIV thing, absolutism. Okay, I just threw that out there on the table and we can just move on. It's a little foreshadow. Uh, But we're going to jump forward to 1918, bringing the war to an end. Now, if this is the first episode you're hearing, it might seem a little shocking that suddenly we just started talking about World War I and now we're ending it. Uh, However, there are 41 episodes before this that are going to build to that. And so we're going to have to jump forward to the, uh, to the end. And we're going to sort of walk through the ending stages just to wrap it up, almost like a, a little wrapping paper and a bow on the, on the gift. August 8th of 1918, it was what we were calling the Black Day of the German Army. That's Eric Ludendorff declaring this is the Black Day of the German Army. And it's the beginning of what's called the 100-day offensive for the Allies. The Allies were on the ropes. They were down on the mat. It was, you know, the, the, the referees like, one, two, three. And somehow they stagger up. And I mean, it's hard to explain how the Allies don't just get back into this, but then end up crushing the Germans. I mean, it is an extraordinary turn of events in World War I, because if you were a betting person, there are multiple points in World War I that you would probably wager everything you have, because it was going to be that sure of a bet, on Germany winning World War I. In uh, August, September of 1914, before the Battle of the Marne, Germany has it in the bag. It's over. The British are retreating. The French are, you know, dying, and they're, they've been retreating for 12 days, and there's no hope. They haven't eaten. They're bedraggled. They're, they have no motivation, and then suddenly the strangest thing happens, and, you know, if you followed the series, you know the story of Kluke turning his flank because he thinks the British and the French can be rooted easier than taking Paris, and he ends up setting himself up for what's called the Battle of the Marne, and now suddenly four years of war ensue. And the same thing is true here. Operation Michael, in early 1918, the Germans have the French and the British, they have the Allies beaten. And it's before the Americans have arrived, and it's like, yes, and the Kaiser actually declares publicly, we've won the war. It's like, what a strange thing. Then to actually see this turn of events where August 8th is the Black Day of the German Army. September 28th, 1918, Ludendorff, who's the commander-in-chief of the German forces, with a name all too 
a little too uncomfortably similar to mine. His name is Eric Ludendorff. Not to be mixed up with Eric Ludy, very different persons. Uh, Ludendorff suffers a nervous breakdown, tells the Kaiser that Germany must seek an armistice. October 2nd, 1918, the, Germany, the German political leadership, sorry about that, learns for the first time that they are beaten and must pursue ne peace negotiations. So the German political leadership actually believes that they're winning. And they don't know. No, the military never speaks to the pol political leaders, let alone to the people of Germany. So the people of Germany are living in this, you know, this false reality that they have won the war, that they're winning the war, and then suddenly it is revealed to them that not only are they not winning, but they're losing. In fact, they're going to seek some kind of peace negotiations to save Germany. October 4th, 1918, so the Germans, how are they going to do this? Well, they don't have a good relationship with France, let's just put it that way, and they don't have a good relationship with Great Britain or Italy or Japan, and so who are they going to negotiate with? Well, Woodrow Wilson, the pacifist, has, had made so many overtures of peace that they figure he's the sucker, and they go to Woodrow Wilson to see if he will broker peace terms for them. So the Germans reach out to Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States, by the way, if you don't know that, in hopes that he can broker for them a peace deal, but his requests are too much. He says they're going to have to remove themselves from all French territory. They're going to have to remove you know, their, their submarines from the ocean. He has these, uh, these statements that he gives back, and they're like, uh, this guy's not on our side, which I don't know why they thought he was. October 23, 1918, Wilson informs the Germans that the current governing leadership of Germany must step down for peace talks to commence. Ludendorff disavows the ne negotiations. Ludendorff is furious over this because basically anyone who is in leadership must step down if we're going to negotiate with the Germans, which means the Kaiser has to abdicate his throne. That means Ludendorff has to step down. And the Kaiser forces uh, Ludendorff to step down, and the Kaiser actually escapes to Holland. And now the ruling powers of Germany are no more. October 24, 1918, the Black Day of the Austria-Hungary Army. Now, Austria-Hungary is where all of this started. That was Gavrilo Princip and the gunshot to Franz Ferdinand. That is where it starts. So Austria-Hungary has been in this. Even though you haven't heard me talk about Austria-Hungary, it's because they're not actually that enjoyable of a topic to, to study. And they're going to dissipate as a country after this. They don't exist anymore. So as a result, it's, it's not as interesting for the mind to ponder. But Austria-Hungary is still around. It's a huge country in Europe. And in one day, which I'm calling the Black Day of the Austrian-Hungarian -Hungary Army, Army 30,000 men are killed and 400,000 men are captured. <laughs> it's like unprecedented. I mean, it's just, I don't know that that's ever happened before. So the, everything is falling to pieces for the central powers. November 3rd, 1918, mutiny strikes the German Navy. The German Navy is commanded to go out and have a massive final battle with the British Navy, and the, the German Navy won't go. Well, this has never happened. I mean, Germans are of great order. They will not go. And there's like mutiny amongst the Navy. They won't fight. Bolshevism, remember uh, Ludendorff? He, he sent Lenin into St. Petersburg to sort of try and disturb the, the, the Russians, and they did. It destroyed them, and now they're the Soviets. And, well, Bolshevism is now spreading like wildfire through the German ranks. So they, he burned down his neighbor's house, and now his house caught on fire. November 11th, 1918. It's called Armistice Day. At the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, the Great War ends. 
At 5 a.m. that morning, Germany, bereft of manpower and supplies and faced with imminent invasion, signed an armistice agreement with the Allies in a railroad car outside, I, I don't know how to say that, uh, France. Every French word has some kind of sound, so if you just sort of throw it in, it somehow covers over the fact that you don't know how to say it. And then I'm going to finish this little list, even though I'm going to go back and sort of fill in some details. June 28th, 1919 the Treaty of Versailles. Okay, so that's a huge event, but you're going to notice there's going to be, you know, seven months in between those where these peace talks, the, the, you have the armistice, no longer are we fighting, but now we need to arrange, we need to figure out how to conclude this. So we have a Treaty of Versailles in 1919, but the first Treaty of Versailles was actually February 26, 1871, and most people have never heard of this one. And because this is, this is the start of the German uh, nation, this is where it begins, and it begins after a, a, a war between France and Germany that was 44 years earlier before the start of World War I. And so that picture that I showed you back here is very important uh, in the landscape of how World War I is going to finish, because this didn't just upset the French. This was national humiliation at the highest levels. So Prussia, soon to become Germany, resoundingly defeated France in the Franco-Prussian War. German troops had besieged Paris, captured the French emperor, Napoleon III, not to be confused with Napoleon Bonaparte, at the town of Sedan, and brought the nation of France to its knees. The Germans chose Versailles, the palace of French kings, as the place to write up the treaty agreement to end the conflict. This treaty of Versailles forced France to pay a war indemnity of five billion gold francs, the equivalent to a quarter of France's annual economic output. Then to ensure this payment, German troops occupied French industrial areas until the full balance was paid. And if that wasn't enough of a humbling trial for the French people to bear, the real stinger was the Germans took the territories of Alsace and Lorraine from the French. And to the French, this was an unforgivable theft. So I have some messages earlier in the series called The French Fury. And to understand the motives of the French in World War I is actually very, very important because even though they're not the aggressor, they are ready for war. And they have had their eye on Alsace and Lorraine since 1871. And if you give them an opportunity, they're going to take it back. And in the very beginning of World War I, it's interesting because the Germans are going to invade through Belgium. And so France has a responsibility to defend Belgium. That's, it, it, it is a neutral country. And when that neutrality is violated, they're technically responsible to defend it. And they have every motive to do it because that's a border country to them. However, when they see the Germans strike in Belgium, you know where they strike? They go after Alsace and Lorraine. They don't protect Belgium, they go after Alsace and Lorraine, which is a dead giveaway of their real motive too. In other words, Germany has bad motives as well, which I will get into. But France is going to expose the fact that they're not you know, all squeaky clean in this, that they want revenge, and that's actually what motivates them. In fact, they had a whole theory uh, in their military uh, system that was based on it. It was called revanchism, which sort of looks like the word revenge to us. And it is. They are going to exact revenge. In fact, they seethe inside. In fact, the military teaches its soldiers 
to seethe on purpose. They even use the term to channel hatred, to channel revanchism. It's like, uh, guys, I'm not sure that that's the healthiest thing to do. And yet that's what is making up this military maneuver in France. They're moved by hatred. They're moved by revenge. And that's going to get them into some big trouble. So the term underneath, I say an eye for an eye. It's a good biblical principle. I'm sure that uh, the French were bringing that up. This is a good biblical principle, an eye for an eye. So remember I talked about Louis XIV and I said that he was the sun king? I'm going to call the German Empire the sun empire. Because in a strange way, what started with Louis XIV in France is now finding its full manifestation, not just in a king, but in an entire nation. And the Germans genuinely feel like they should be the sun of Europe, and everything should revolve around them. I know that sounds very self-focused, but it is. Uh, you know, so if you're thinking that, you're right, it is. And the Germans genuinely feel like they have the best that is to offer in all of, uh, in all of Europe. France is past tense. We are the new ruler of Europe. And they get no respect. If you, ever, if you hear some of the earlier uh, parts of the series, you hear how the Kaiser, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, is treated. Uh, the, the ruling czar of Russia, his name is Nicholas II, his dad, Alexander, had such contempt for, Nick, for, I'm sorry, for William, Wilhelm II, the, the, the Kaiser of Germany. He wouldn't look him in the face. So if you ever talk to him, this is like a king talking to another king. He wouldn't face him. He would turn his back to him and sneer at him over his shoulder. And so the Kaiser of Germany has always felt like, hey, how come no one appreciates me? He has an insecurity complex. And as a result, it's interesting because the whole nation has it. And they, they are a very impressive nation. They're, they're only at the time of the start of World War I, they're only 44 years old. They're this young nation, and all these other nations around the world have such respect. And they're like top-tier nations, and Germany is sort of nudging its way into there to say, hey, we belong up here, and no one treats them that way. And they're also suffering from this feeling of encirclement. Russia on one side, France on the other, Great Britain is out there, and they're encircled. And so they need to do something to solve this. And so you see these odd things that are playing into the beginning of World War I and the Sun Empire. So listen to Barbara Tuckman from the Guns of August uh, refer to this. For Germany, 1870 was not a final settlement. The German day in Europe, which they thought had dawned when the German Empire was proclaimed in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, was still postponed. France was not crushed. The French Empire was actually expanding in North Africa and Indochina. The world of art and beauty and style still worshipped at the feet of Paris. Germans were still gnawed by envy of the country they had conquered. At the same time, they considered France decadent in culture and enfeebled by democracy. It is impossible for a country that has had 42 war ministers in 43 years to fight effectively, announced Professor Hans Delbruck, Germany's leading historian. Believing themselves superior in soul, in strength and energy, industry and national virtue, Germans felt they deserved the dominion of Europe. The work of 1871 must be completed. 
So I have a picture on the screen that is very interesting. Remember, this, is, this message is called the Hall of Mirrors. And so I'm sort of playing off that idea of a mirror. And I'm saying the absolutist is what it's called on the screen. And then underneath it, it says history's bizarre mirror. And on the left, you have Louis XIV and that which grows out of Louis XIV, Napoleon Bonaparte. In other words, what you have is a history of absolutism in, in uh, France. What's interesting also is that you start with this absolutism, with the, which the people of France hate, and then they have this French Revolution to get rid of these kings, and then what do they end up with? A greater absolutist than has ever before existed, which was Napoleon. That, talk about an ego guy. Uh, you've never seen anything quite like it. But that is then going to be mirrored on the opposite side in their arch nemesis in Europe, which is Germany. And so just as you see in, in Louis XIV and in Napoleon Bonaparte, you're going to see in the Kaiser at the very beginning of World War I. He wants control. He feels that it belongs to Germany. Of course, he's the one that is supposed to lead it all, and he has a vision for it. And what that is ultimately going to bring about is a man named Adolf Hitler, an absolutist of the most uh, menacing uh, nature. And so what you have is what starts out as a French thing ends up becoming a German thing. And the very thing that that, I mean, the French hate the Germans, the Germans hate the French, but they should probably look at each other in the mirror and recognize, well, we're a lot alike. The Hall of Mirrors, the evil reflection of absolutism. The Paris Peace Conference, January 18th through 21st, 1919. So this is going to be right after, you know, you have the Armistice Day on November 11th, 1918. Now, a couple months later, you have all the nations, the allies, uh, and you know, joining together for what we're calling the Paris Peace Conference. And these are called the Big Four. And so you have Lloyd George from Great Britain on the left. You have Orlando from Italy, uh, second to left. You have Clemenceau uh, from France, who's, what, second from right, third from left. And then you have Woodrow Wilson, who's a nice, tall American guy uh, there. And here, there's a lot of paintings of this, which is really interesting. This is going to take place in the Hall of Mirrors. And now this is actually a painting that goes way up. And this is, this is just a little slice of it across the bottom. But if you know those characters, you could see a lot. Like you can see Woodrow Wilson in there uh, just off center to the left. And Clemenceau's right in the middle from France. Uh, but it is interesting uh, just to see these paintings. That is a photo which is extremely interesting uh, to me. That's the Hall of Mirrors. It was packed, I want to say, with over a thousand people. Uh, very interesting. These are all delegates from countries. And then here's a painting of the same thing in the Hall of Mirrors. And then we're going to call, I'm going to call this the Second Treaty of Versailles. Even though most people, this is the Treaty of Versailles. I mean, this is all they know as the Treaty of Versailles. But this is June 28, 1919, 48 years later. Now, George is Clemenceau. He is sort of would be like the official, like Woodrow Wilson is the president. He would be in a, the equivalent of that in France. And so he's the key man who is going to represent France. And he has very strong demands of what must come into this. And everyone is feeling the intensity of this because France was violated in World War I more than any other nation. Eh, I mean, Russia sure did take it on the chin as well. But Russia 
invaded Germany, they weren't invaded first. So, but France was invaded. And so as a result, most people know that the weight of voice needs to be in the French department. They lost more people in this war. I mean, it's over a million men killed uh, in World War I, whereas America lost 65,000 killed. You know, it's like, it's sort of hard to say that Woodrow Wilson should have more say than Clemenceau. However, Clemenceau, mm, he is carrying the revanchism of France, and he's remembering 1871. I mean, he's old enough to remember this. He remembers the shame. He remembers the spittle in the eye. He remembers, and so he's carrying that burden into this situation, and it's interesting because even uh, Albert I, who's the king of Belgium, if, that if you listen to the whole series, you would have fallen in love with him. He's a great man. He is going to plead for mercy for Germany, even against what Clemenceau is bringing, but his voice is going to be, he's just a small country, even though Belgium experienced tremendous trauma in World War I. And so even his voice is sort of going to be overruled, and Clemenceau's voice is sort of going to win the day. But the fact that it does win the day, and it is not marked by mercy, but it is marked by judgment, is actually going to create ripple effects. So this is Clemenceau's quote at the end. He says, I, at last I am no longer anxious. I have obtained almost everything I wanted. Well, uh, guys, that doesn't bode well. The fact that Clemenceau got almost everything he wanted, uh, this isn't good. So Marshal Ferdinand Falk would be the leader of the French military. He refuses to come to the Treaty of Versailles, does not show up in uh, the Hall of Mirrors because he doesn't believe it is just. He doesn't believe it is appropriate. And so this is what he says in regards to the uh, Treaty of Versailles. This is not peace. This is an armistice for 20 years. What's interesting is 1919, if you add 20 years, you get 1939. I know that was some great math, right? However, you know when World War II starts? 1939. And so he's right. It was an armistice for 20 years, and yet it was just the seedbed. It was just the starter package for the fury of, of World War II. So I, th we could just call this the German newspaper, okay? Because I'm not going to Deutsch Zeitung. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But this is what the German newspaper said. Today, the disgraceful treaty is being signed. The German people will reconquer the place among the nations to which it is entitled. Harold Nicholson, who was a British ambassador, he said this in 1919, we were very stupid men. The treaties imposed upon our enemies were neither just nor wise. What is going to come down upon Germany is so extreme. And the indemnity, the war indemnity, I, I don't know what it comes to, it's like $55 billion that they need to pay back to the Allies. And so it's going to lead to a financial crash. The money in Germany, like it takes billions of dollars to be able to buy bread uh, of, of their, their money. And so they, they have a massive uh, hyperinflation situation that kicks into gear here. But it wasn't the leaders of the military or the Kaiser that actually signed this. And so as a result, in Germany, it's called the November criminals. It's these politicians that got peace for Germany, but at the cost of Germany. Germany has to basically liquidate its entire military. Germany had to, it lost whole sections of its country that were, you know, became Poland, for instance, is, is one of them. And so as a result, the Germans feel betrayed by these politicians, and they're forever called the November criminals. 
So Princess Blucher, who married, she was a, a, an English woman who married into German, a German, the Germany royal family, wrote this in 1920. Over and over I hear the same refrain, we will hate our, that should be our, we will hate our conquerors with a hatred that will only cease when the day of our revenge comes. Now, remember what France was dealing with? It was a little revenge problem. Now, what is Germany dealing with? Yeah, we got another one of those revenge problems going here. And you know, as we sit in the peanut gallery and watch this, we're like, uh, guys, this isn't good because we just went through four years and literally 70 million people dead now, you know, something like that. And yet it looks like we're just about to do it again. Is there a better way? And I think most of us would agree there is. However, some of us have a cyclical pattern like this in our own life where we continue moving in a direction that harms us, even though we don't really want to, but we're not exercising the truth that we do have. So Adolf Hitler in 1924, so this is five years after the war. Hitler was a soldier in World War I. And it's interesting because it's somewhat surprising. He wasn't you know, some grand example of, uh, of German uh, anything, but he has the ability to express himself in a manner that rallies the souls of the Germans. You see, he is carrying revenge in his soul towards the November criminals. You know who they believe? The, the November criminals to the Germans were Bolsheviks. Now, that's our way of saying communists, right? That they took over and they made a decision. Now, this might not even be true, but this is what they feel. And so the November criminals in Germany were Bolsheviks. And to Hitler, follow me on this, he believes that all Bolsheviks are Jews. So when you see the revenge, you're going to begin to see how World War II is going to take shape, is that there is a hatred and a desire to take back Germany, yes, but also punish the November criminals, to punish the Bolsheviks, to punish the Jews. And so what an interesting seedbed that we see happening here. This is Adolf Hitler, his de declaration in 1924. He looked a little younger than that picture, by the way. The state itself has become the biggest swindler. We will no longer submit. We want a dictatorship. I don't know who in their right mind would ever want a dictatorship. But again, it's that absolutist mentality that Hitler is very attracted to. It's interesting that he is going to become the fulfillment of that in nine years from this point. He is going to be arrested because he is, you know, undermining the government at the time. He is uh, laboring to create havoc in the existing Weimar Republic, is what it was called. And this is what he testifies at his trial. He says, I alone bear responsibility, but I am not a criminal because there is no such thing as high treason against the traitors of 1918. I feel myself best of the Germans who wanted the best for the German people. His motive to himself is pure. You see, he sees what happened in those November criminals. November, when you get the word November criminals, that's November 11th, 1918, when they called for an armistice. It's like Ludendorff wouldn't have called for that armistice. The Kaiser wouldn't have called for that armistice. None of our military leaders, none of the soldiers would have called for that. We would have fought to the death, is what Hitler says. And yet those November criminals signed that paper and they agreed to an armistice that we never agreed to. So as a result, they sold our country down the river. And that anger is brewing inside of them. 
So we're going to call this the Hall of Mirrors cycle. You see, what we have is 1871, the war of the Franco-Prussian War is going to lead to World War I. And the revenge and the insecurity, the absolutism, all of this, this control of Europe. France controlled Prussia under its thumb for hundreds of years. And Prussia then retaliates. And they crush France. And now France, with revenge, wants to crush Germany. And that's what the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 is. It is France crushing Germany. And now we see it building again. It's called the stab in the back theory, if you've ever heard it. And Ludendorff is going to sponsor one man, very specifically, to take the lead and to be a voice for Germany. And his name is Adolf Hitler. And Hitler is going to begin to voice something to the people of Germany, and they're going to rally around it. We were betrayed! And November criminals, we were stabbed in the back. Let's take back what is ours. The Treaty of Versailles is false. We didn't sign it. It was false politicians who did that. And so what you have is a seedbed of fury and revenge, the very same thing that was lingering in France before World War I now lingers in Germany before World War II. So I'm going to call this the Hall of Mirrors cycle, and I want to ask the question, is there a way to break it? Because there's nothing more frustrating than the cyclical pattern of defeat in any of our lives. And if any of you have ever tasted of that cyclical pattern of defeat, oh, it is frustrating. You know, here we go again. There I go. You know, I say I'm not going to do this ever again, and then I do it. Is there a way to break this? And here's Proverbs 26, 11, which is sort of talking about the same thing. As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Well, why would you keep doing that if you know it's folly? And yet it's like you can almost see Clemenceau. He can't help it. He can't help himself. He must crush Germany. And if the Allies were to sponsor and to keep the Treaty of Versailles and actually enforce it, Germany would have been crushed. However, they felt bad about the Treaty of Versailles, so none of the Allied troops enforced it. They didn't demand full payment. Germany never paid back the $55 billion. And so as a result, they felt so bad. I mean, look at what's happening. They have hyperinflation. Their world's crumbling to pieces. They have no military to defend themselves. And they showed compassion on them, which is actually a nice feature. However, in the midst of all that compassion, what grew in that seedbed was hatred, and it was Adolf Hitler. And Hitler is going to take advantage of all of that compassion, and he's going to play upon it as if it's a stringed instrument. And that's the beginnings of World War II, which you have to listen to my World War II series to fully appreciate that. This is like a, a, quite the plug for my World War II series, isn't it? The cross. So is there a way to throw a wrench into the works? to trip things up in this pattern of defeat that many of us have tasted and probably all of us despise. We hate that pattern. And so the cross is what I'm going to call the wrench thrown into the works. God is going to intervene in the affairs of men, and he is going to do something that is actually going to shatter old systems. Hearts of stone can now become softened. That which has always been can actually shift into a new thing. We have always been in Adam, but now we are invited to exit Adam and behave in Christ, to live in Christ. And that is a privilege of privileges, 
to recognize that there is actually a watershed in history that is giving us an opportunity to step away from one model into a new way of living. At every juncture, like even this morning, I want us to freshly remember that and not to say, oh yeah, I've already heard that truth, but to hear it again right now and to recognize that if there is anything in which you feel stuck or where you feel that there is a pattern of defeat, to exit that and to trust that God sets new patterns in place. So Revelation 21.5, which is a great summation of the entire work of the Messiah, not just 2,000 years ago, but even now. Then he, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Isaiah 42.9 and then also uh, chapter 43 and verse 19. Listen to this. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And then in chapter 43, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So if you have a wilderness zone of your life, if you have a desert zone of your life where, like the Israelites, you've sort of walked in circles, and it's really, really frustrating because you've been here 40 years and you really desire out. You know that there's something more across that Jordan. You know, there's this land flowing with milk and honey and you'd rather prefer to be there as opposed to walking in circles in the wilderness. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That he impacts our wilderness, he impacts our desert. He actually gives us an avenue of exit so that we could cross the Jordan into the land of promise and we could see a new behavior. We could experience a new life. And this is our God. This is what he specializes in. But we need to hear it afresh sometimes. We need to remember this anew, to recognize that what we have done in our life and how we have lived, even though it's like, well, it's been 30 years that I've been doing this. Yeah, and every time this happens, then I blow up and I have this attitude. Yeah, yeah there's a pattern there. I don't doubt it. However, there's a new pattern that God wants to establish. And if you turn to him, he is able. He is able to do it. One of the statements that we had at the very beginning of our training was, I can't, but he can. Many of us end our gospel understanding with, okay, Jesus did it, but I can't do it, which sounds very noble to come to that conclusion. However, the gospel doesn't stop with, he did it, and you can't. It's also the next step, is, and that he desires to do it in me. It's, it's true that you can't. You can't change your patterns. You're just like France and Germany. And you're in that cyclical pattern of defeat and war. And you can't seem to get out. But the cross intervenes in our life. And when we embrace it, it sets us into a new zone. And that is the zone of he is able. So that's where our faith rests. Our faith doesn't rest in our ability to do it. It's like, yes, and I believe I can pull this off. It rests in his ability to do it. He can do this. He can pull it off. And that is where our confidence must lie. So I don't know what your pattern is, but I, you know, I know that there likely are some really juicy patterns in this room that you would love to get away from. 
And I want to remind you of a God who has not just come to this earth and given us everything we need, but he, is, he ever lives to make intercession for us and to save us to the uttermost. This is the God we serve. He desires to establish a new pattern, a new way of living in our life. He's sick and tired of this whole hall of mirrors cycle is just along with us. I don't think he has any desire or delight in it any more than we do. We hate it. He hates it. So let's join with him in seeing this overhauled. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, whoa, whoa, stop right there. What's your position? Well, this is talking about you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things, hmm, that includes quite a few things. I have a hunch it includes your cyclical pattern of defeat. That God desires to set a new pattern in place. So let's talk about that new pattern as we conclude. This is sort of sad for me, guys. You have to realize, I, I, oh, bless you. I'm, I'm concluding a series of 42 messages. Of, of a, and once I finish World War I, it's hard to go back to it, right? I can't just go, okay, guys, I'm doing another series on World War I. It just doesn't work that way, right? So I have to say goodbye to it as we're going. So this is quite the, the, you know, the, the territory that I'm choosing to finish with. Out of all World War I, it's sort of hard because you get the Versailles Treaty is the end. It's like, come on, guys, give me something better than that because that just leads to World War II. Well, we can learn from that. That's the exciting thing for us. What's the good of history if not to be a teacher, not just of what to do sometimes, but of what not to do? And what we see in World War I and in World War II is a cycle of defeat. And what we see at the cross is a broken cycle of defeat. And men and women set free to live according to a new pattern. A new pattern that is so utterly shocking to the world that it doesn't even seem to fit into the conversation easily. For instance, I'm going to read a scripture to you in the upcoming minute here that is so opposite World War I and World War II that we don't really have a grid. It's hard to digest it. it just, you almost want to laugh at it and say, oh yeah, as if a government is really going to adopt that principle. So the new pattern is love. And this is what Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 is going to say, and I show you a better way. Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to the church at Corinth. What do we know about the church at Corinth? They're a mess. And they've been in a cyclical pattern of defeat. What do they keep doing? They divide over everything. They have skirmishes and squabbles over everything. Every issue you have you know, the liberal contingent and you have the conservative contingent always going back and forth. You have those that feel strongly about this, those that feel you know, this guy's an idiot and they can't get along and they, you know, they want to kick each other out. And this is denominationalism in a nutshell. And it's a cyclical pattern for 2,000 years. One of my biggest passions here at Ellerslie is to throw a wrench into the works and to see that denominational cycle switched into us actually heeding what God says in the Word of God. The entire book of 1 Corinthians is based on the premise. Guys, see all this denominationalism? Nope. None of it. You're supposed to be one. That's actually what the entire book is about, and yet most people, their division points in the body of Christ today are based on passages in 1 Corinthians. That's the irony. 
Most of the division points we have in the body of Christ are based in passages in 1 Corinthians. And yet the entire premise of the book is don't let this divide you. And the pinnacle of the book is 1 Corinthians 13. This is the better way. This is what we need. Now, I don't know that the French government or the German government are going to adopt what I'm about to say. Because it really would be hard to be the first country to do this. Because if France doesn't penalize Germany, then Germany could come right back on their head again. And they don't like having Germany breathing down their throat. And so they want, when they have the moment at the Treaty of Versailles, they're going to crush them. And when Germany has the opportunity in the treaty of, first Treaty of Versailles, they're going to crush France. And as a result, you have a cyclical pattern that will never seem to end until someone is willing to step in. And that's what Jesus does. He's like, guys, I'd like to end this cyclical pattern. And he steps onto this earth in human skin and says, take me. And he sets a new pace. He sets a new pattern. Now, I want you to ponder this scripture. Now, I, I want you to ponder it personally, because for whatever reason, many of us have heard these words many times in our life, and we still don't take them seriously. We don't. In other words, oh, he doesn't really mean that. What if he does? I don't know any other words that Jesus says that he doesn't really mean. So what if he really does mean this? Now, if we don't start applying this on the personal level, it's really hard to apply it on the national level. In other words, we can't expect a government to pick this up if the church itself isn't beginning to demonstrate this. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You know how preposterous that is? That is very unwise, is the way our brain, our soul, interacts with it. It doesn't actually make sense to us, practically speaking, because it's like, well, people would take advantage of me then. Could you imagine if I came to Georges Clemenceau, and I sat down with him, and I said, well, Jesus has a, few, a little advice for you in your national leadership. I'd like you to consider uh, not demanding an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth from Germany. They were the aggressor in this, and they harmed you greatly. However, if you respond in the flesh, the way you're desiring to respond, what we're going to do is we're actually going to create even more disaster in the future. So what if we were to change this now? But look at how crazy this would sound. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, remember the German that slapped you on the right cheek? Turn to him the other also. Well, wait, that guy's going to be voted out of office as quick as he makes that decision. How secure are the people of France going to feel if, if, if Georges Clemenceau actually heeded that? You follow me? This is a very difficult thing to know how to apply at a national level. I get it. However, it's equally difficult to apply at the personal level. And so what my encouragement is, even though I see what is needed in the global uh, theatrics of World War I and World War II, it's like, boy, do we need a leader that is actually able to step into this situation with diplomacy, with uh, strength, and be able to bring peace where, I mean, there isn't any in this landscape. But what it starts with is us in the church of Jesus Christ. We model this. 
And I can't expect my nation to do this. That's not my interest, technically. My interest is that we as the church do this. That's where it starts for us. This is the pattern, and we teach it. And we don't need to follow the mistakes of France and Germany and lose millions and millions of men over 40 years because we are so self-focused and we must do it our way and we must get vengeance. But we can actually prosper in our souls and live with triumph if we simply decide to do it God's way. Father, thank you for the spiritual lessons from World War I. Thank you that you teach us through all things through the virtues and through the failures of those that have gone before us. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would heed it and that we would recognize that it begins with us, that there is a self-sacrifice and there is a degree of love from us that seems even foolish for us to give it, lest we be taken advantage of. But Lord Jesus, do we trust your word or not? Are we willing to follow the new pattern? Are we truly desirous to live a new way? Lord, I pray that instead of modeling the failures of World War I, we would model the success of Jesus Christ. We can't do it in our own strength, in our own gumption, our own willpower. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your grace. And so we ask for that, Lord Jesus. Come and work wonders in our midst. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.